Jewish audio on Chabad.org. The great secret to have love to Hashem, love to Torah, is love to have a fellow Jew. Welcome everybody, this is Ordinary People with Extraordinary Stories. I'm Chana Weisberg, host of this podcast. So today we thought we would change things up a little bit, and instead of me interviewing one of our many guests, our, my colleagues decided that they would be interviewing me. You see, a couple weeks ago on January 28th, or the 19th of Shvat, my beloved father, Harav David Shochet, uh, from the community in Toronto, passed away. And he was a beloved, respected community leader, shliach of the Rebbe, halachic authority known worldwide, um, leading the Toronto community for over 66 years. And my colleagues thought it would be interesting to hear a little bit about the behind the scenes, what his life was like and what it was like for me to be privileged to be his daughter. It was with great hesitancy that I accepted this challenge and I hope that you will be inspired by this interview. Hello, and welcome everybody to another episode of Ordinary People, Extraordinary Stories. Um, today, I, Menachem Posner, am standing in for Chana, and I'm excited to share with you that our guest is none other, none other than Chana Weisberg. So I'll begin this conversation, first of all, just on behalf of myself and the Chabad.org family and the viewers over here, uh, by extending our condolences to you and to your family on the passing of your father, who was such uh, an inspiration to you, I understand. And I would just begin by asking you to tell us his story. Where did he come from? How did he become the legendary Rabbi David Shachat that he has been for so many years for so many of us? Thank you, Menachem. So, you know, first I just want to say that for anyone who's watching, like it's it's impossible to encompass my father in an interview, you know, and and any lack is is only on my part because it's obviously not something that you, you can share in, in 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 an hour in a lifetime. You know, there was so many different components to his life and to his personality and to his accomplishments. So this is just a little glimmer. This is just a little glimpse, a little window. You know, I I thought I knew my father. I, you know, I. Over 50 years, 57 years, I'm with my father. I live near him. I live, I lived for most of my life around the corner for him, from him. But the, you know, it was during the Shiva that we were just hearing from so many people what I never knew because my father never spoke. He didn't find a need to share, you know, to share who he was speaking to, who he was helping. You know, a lot of people help people and do things for people and they'll, they'll share, they'll tell you with, in confidentiality, you know, I helped an individual, they won't say the name, you know, he had so many incredible stories. And yet the stories really came out, came out from the people who were sharing it with us. So that's just to start, you know, it, it, there were so many different aspects of my father. Um, but yeah, I, I mean, where, where, where should we start? I think we should start at the very beginning. Um, okay. Right? He was born 91 years ago. Yes. Um, if you can just, I mean, share a little bit about his parents, his upbringing, where, you know, where, where did he come from? How did he become who he was? 
So he grew up in the famous Shochet family. <laughs> um, there was there was 10 children. My grandmother was an only child. She was an only child and she went on to raise 10 children. Um, her parents were killed in the war, but my father, my, my grandmother and my grandfather went to Switzerland where my grandfather was the rabbi there. And that's how they were saved from the war. And that's the beginning years of how my, my father grew up. Um, he, my grandfather then later moved after the war to Holland, to The Hague, where he was offered a position as chief rabbi. It was interesting when I was, um, when I was lecturing there, the community actually showed me a community book, which had a letter from the Friedrich Rebbe to my grandfather. My grandfather had some different correspondence with him. He was not a Lubavitcher at that point, but he had correspondence with, with the Friedrich Rebbe, where in one of them, the Friedrich Rebbe says to him, um, that many people, many children during the war, their parents were, were afraid that they would be taken, killed by the Nazis. So many parents gave them to priests or nuns to hide them. And he, the Friedrich Rebbe was asking my, my grandfather to please do whatever you can to save this, these children, because for every minute, these were the words, because for every moment that they are in these places, their parents in the afterlife are in terrible pain. So do whatever you can to, to save those children. So that's, that's where my father, you know, they spent on their way to Toronto. That's where they were. And then my grandfather took on a position in Toronto where most of the time he was teaching. Um, he spent a lot of years teaching and it was the Rebbe who actually told my father to go on Schlichus to Toronto, who sent him on Schlichus to Toronto. So your father came to Chicago where his father, I'm sorry, to Toronto, where his father was a rabbi and he joined him also in the same general well, field. Well, he, he, he went to, he was at then a teenager. He went to Lubavitch. He went to New York, to Lubavitch, to Yeshiva there. And it was there that he, um, he learned, he studied, he, he obviously, you know, did, grew close to the Rebbe there at that point. Um, and the Rebbe sent him when it was 1957, and there was this terrible attack in Farhabad, a terrorist attack, and there were children that were, were killed, and a teacher that were killed. And the Rebbe sent a delegation of Bacharim, of, of students, um, a special belt delegation to go to the Holy Land and to try to uplift the spirit, because people were very devastated after that whole terrible murders. And it was there that my father, um, my father was chavrusas with my uncle, Rabbi Nachman Sudak, shalom, who was um, the Rebbe's shliach in England. And he, he, Nachman sent my father, a, gave my father a sitter from the Rebbe to give to his sister, my mother. And it was there that my father met my mother and, um, you know, the rest is history. And <laughs> they decided no. to get married. I'm going to guess that they came from very different backgrounds. Your father came from the, you know, European, I guess, Western European, non-Hasidic background. And your mother was from very Russian Chabad milieu. How did that, um, how did that work? What was their common, what, what, you know, what, what, what language did they speak to each other? Um, it's a good question. Well, my mother spoke, I mean, they both spoke Hebrew and they both spoke Yiddish. So I guess I, I, I didn't even ask them what they communicated, but I know well, when, we, we, when, we, when we were little, they would always speak Yiddish when they didn't want us to understand things um, for a while. So um, yeah, definitely. My mother was, you know, at the point she was, she was actually a dentist, you know, and she left everything. She gave up everything to join his shlichus 
because the Rebbe said that they should, you know, the Rebbe gave a bracha and the Rebbe said that my father should go and shlich us to Toronto to, he was, he originally, he was thinking of doing other things, not, you know, becoming an electrical engineer or doing other things, not so his Torah wouldn't be his, our rabbis teach us that we shouldn't get our livelihood from Torah. Mm-hmm. Um, and the Rebbe told him, this is where you'll find your calling. This is where you'll find your satisfaction. It's in teaching people and being with people and influencing people. Mm-hmm. And he took the Rebbe's, you know, his, his, this as his mission statement his entire life. He was always involved with helping people in the most detailed ways, in the most beautiful ways. He was there for people. Um, you know, at, at, throughout the Shiva, we're hearing from so many people from literally all walks of life. And I, I mean, I knew growing up in his house, the phone would be ringing all day and all night. You know, there were people who would call him from different time zones. My mother would be like, it's three in the morning, <laughs> didn't you realize? <laughs> um, but he would get calls from all over to just help people, counsel people, halachic decisions for people. Um, it was, he was an, an incredible individual in terms of his learning, in terms of his knowledge. And he gave very confident yet creative sakalacha decisions in Jewish law, um, but always with a certain compassion for the individual, a certain compassion for where people were at. You know, one after another, people were saying to us, it wasn't, he would give the answer, but what they remember the most was not the answer that he gave them, but it was how he gave the answer. You know, that little extra, how are you at the end before hanging up the phone? How's your family? That extra asking, that extra compassion, that really um, was his signature. You know, he, he, he was, that was his signature style. He wasn't this extrovert who knew what everyone was doing and everyone's issues, but he made it his business to know and to understand what people were at. Um, you know, a woman told me that during COVID, her, he called her. He never had called her before. He called her every single day because her husband was not well. And every single day he asked her, how are you doing? How's your family? And at one point her phone got disconnected because her husband always took care of paying the bills. And she, she just was like, he didn't, she called him back a little, a few weeks after because she, 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 till she realized until it got reconnected. And he said, I'm so happy that you're calling me. I was so worried about you, you know, and, and how he remembered like all these people, what everyone's situation was, what everyone's name was, you know, to remember to call. And one after the other, people were saying, you know, we thought we were special. We thought we were the only ones. He was just calling us, but we couldn't believe that there are so many that he just actually took. And I guess that's an important lesson to remember. You know, it's not, it's not what you're answering, it's how you're answering. I mean, obviously what you're answering is also important, but what he's remembered most for is not only the answers, which some of them were amazing and extremely intricate and, and, and important, but it was how you answer people, how you connect with people. And for me, that was the biggest lesson that I'm learning, you know, as I, as I am hearing from more and more people about his life and about who he, how he connected with people. Mm-hmm. So I want to just back up a little bit and going back to his earlier days. So he's, he came from a non-Chabad background and he lands in Chabad. Now, just to paint a picture, this was before the Rebbe had officially launched his campaigns or was just beginning to. So there were no tefillin stands. There was no one giving out Shabbos candles, at least on, a, on an official basis. But I guess what was there and what was his, how did he take to all this as, I guess, quote unquote, an outsider or someone who was becoming an insider? Like, how did he, you know, how did he take to it all? 
Well, I think that's what he really loved about Chabad was that the, the pride, the pride in being Jewish, the pride of going around and just showing the world what being Jewish is all about. Um, I, I, we just received, someone sent us, uh, people would write in a duch when the Rebbe just started mitzvah, mitzvah lulav, which right. was going out and, and shaking lulav with people, shaking the four, the four different kinds on Sukkot. So there was this letter that the that people would write to, that people wrote to the rabbit to say these are the, the list of the boys that actually went and there was two days of Cholamai that people could sign up to actually go and his name was on both days there was no no one else that was signed up for both days but his name was on both days and i i mean i remember as a little girl he would just go and kosher homes all the time you know and even in his older years, you know, people tell me like he, he would go on the, on his hands and knees when he was in his fifties, you know, even in his sixties on hands and knees to, with a blowtorch, just going to whatever needed to be done, whatever was necessary to be done. He was there. He didn't look at himself as superior to anything. Um, if there was something that was necessary, he would do. He told me once the story that he, he went with a, a friend of his, um, they were sent to put on tefillin on people in this small hick town in New Jersey. And they, they, they went on a bus on the public transportation to the city. And they went around from house to house seeing where are the Jews so that they can put on tefillin on them. And they weren't very successful. I, I don't remember if he told me they had no, boy, no, pre, no people at all who actually they, they met. Um, but at the end of the day, they realized that they had missed the last bus out of the, out of the city to go back to, to Brooklyn. And um, so what did they decide to do? They didn't have any extra change on them. They were young, young yeshiva boys. They decided to go to the park and, and lay down on the park bench. But the police came around soon after and told them there's no loitering here. And they said, well, we, we missed the bus out. What should we do? And he said, I'm sorry, there's no loitering. If you want, you can come down to the precinct, to the prison, and you can sleep there. And so that's what they did. They slept there. And he said, they slept there because that was where they found the next morning there was a yid there, there was a Jew there and they put on tefillin on this Jew. He says, so we needed to go to that little hick town and get caught overnight on the park bench in order to really help this yid, to find this yid, to find this Jew and put on tefillin on him. And that really was his, his motto for life. You know, when he was in the hospital in the very last days, he was put into a room um, it was an award in Toronto. There's social medicine, which isn't great. And at first it wasn't great that he was put into a ward with four other people. But one of the people in the ward, his name was Weisberg. And my husband and I were there for Shabbos. And my husband, of course, our name is Weisberg. So my husband started making conversation with this man who was not religious and was not really very close to Judaism. But he grew up as a in his youth. He obviously he spoke Yiddish and he was a man who who knew his the culture. And my, my husband made Kiddush, and my husband made Abdullah, and he said, Yaili, the guy's name was Yaili, Yaili White, his Jewish name was Yaili Weisberg. And um, my my father said to me, you know, maybe I ended up right here in this hospital bed, in this hospital, in just in order to make Kiddush and Abdullah so that this Jew could hear, could hear about it. Um, wow. You know, that, that was... Good. Sorry. Sounds like I think he sounds like he's a person who really focused on every individual from a lot of these things that you're saying. At the same time, I want to point out for um, our, our listeners who might not be aware that he was very much a broader communal figure. Um, he was the president of the Vajar Banam, which is the rabbinical council, um, for 30 years, which I also understand was 
He was actually the president, you know, he's, he, it was a rotational position. You know, he was the, the president for, it was supposed to be rotate after four years, but after four years of him doing it, he was such a man of peace. You know, he, he, he stood his ground. He was very, um, very, very, very much inflexible in what he felt was his values. But at the same time, he knew how to do it in a way that with, with humor, with, with a twinkle in his eye, that people could accept it, that people understood that this was something that was for their benefit. And after that four years, you know, rabbis could sometimes be one at each other. Um, but after those four years, they said, Rabbi Shachet, we need you to continue. And they didn't let him, they didn't let him, let him leave until his late, very, you know, end of his, end of his years. Wow. That's, yeah, that was, um, but that, you know, that, that was really a, his hallmark, like standing his ground when it came to halacha, being very proud of who you are, what you are, but at the same time, finding compassion for people, finding a way to say it. And I mean, there was tremendous miracle stories, you know, of how he, he, he did this. Um, every Simchas Torah, there was a line of people who came for his brachos, who came really? to hear his brachos. And the line was literally out the door and he would, he would convene a based in a rabbinic court of law with three people, three him being one of them, and he would give a psak halacha. Uh, how would you translate that? Uh, uh, an actual rabbinic uh, verdict decision, decision that um, different people who couldn't have children that they should have children, and they had children. Miracles were coming out out you know at that time. It was really incredible. But he did these all, and, and and so many miracles that happened with him. I mean, you could read online. There's a story of the buffalo with the priest, the, the priest that he, he – I know it's a long story. Can you maybe give us the two-minute version of it, the very quick version, for those of us who aren't going to go online? Um, sure. Basically, it was um, – he was asked to speak at a seminar and at the seminar there was Jews and non-Jews. So he wasn't sure if he should actually attend. So he asked the Rabbi Kharikov, who was his uncle, who was the chief secretary of the Lubavitcher Rebbe, whether or not he should go. And he was told to go, but he decided to speak about, but he should speak about something that's applicable to Jews and non-Jews. And so he chose Staka, which is charity, because that's something that's applicable. And in it, he told a story about um, a great man that lived, a great rabbi who was the Toswas Yom Tov, and who during his time, there was a miser in his community who never gave money for charity. And um, at the end of this miser's life, people were obviously very irked by them because he was so stingy, but they realized that this miser had actually given charity, but very discreetly. He had told a butcher and a baker to always deliver every Friday to all the poor people in the city. And so when this miser passed away, the people, the poor people came to the Tosos Yom Tov and said, we have no, you know, we have no money. And all of a sudden, without any notice, they stopped. And it was then that they realized who this miser had been. Um, so my father said this story. And in the crowd, there was this priest who had grown up not knowing that his mother was Jewish. His mother had told him on her deathbed that she's a Jew. Um, but she, he thought that she was hallucinating. His father was a major in the U.S. Army, and he had traveled to Europe, um, and it was there that he found his war bride during the war, he brought her back, but they never really spoke about his mother being Jewish. And on her deathbed, she confessed to her son that she is Jewish, 
and so much so that he should even know who his ancestors were. And she cited the story. But the priest thought that he was just, she was simply hallucinating, that it wasn't something clear. It was the end of her life. He thought maybe she was just making up stories. But when he heard the story straight from my father, he realized that the story was true. And he asked my father, what should I do? And so my father told him, you spent so many years in, of your life learning another religion that's foreign to who you are. And now you need to at least know a little bit more about Judaism. And he gave him numbers of people to call in his city, he gave him his own number. He never had heard, he didn't hear from him for many, many years. Um, and when my father was traveling to Israel at one point at the Kosel, he meets this man who says to him, Rabbi Shochet, Rabbi Shochet, he turns around, a man completely religious with children at his side. He says, don't you recognize me? I'm that former priest you met in Buffalo. And my father is a direct descendant of the Tosfos Yom Tov, and the priest is a direct descendant of this miser. Wow. And they just met at this point in time. Um, but so my father's message- This mess is a story, which means that both of your families were aware of this story for more than 300 years until right. the circle came around. That's came very, around, exactly. Wow, that's amazing. Exactly. That's amazing. But, so, you know, I, I think like at one point, you know, there was so many miracle stories that happened with him. And at one point I asked him, like, Daddy, how are you able to do all these these miracle things? Like, what does it mean? You know, I, I'm his youngest, so we had a very loving relationship. I could ask these kind of questions. Mm -hmm. And he, he's, he, and I, I'll never forget what he told me. He said, Shlucho shal adam kamoso, the messenger of a person is like him. He felt he was sent by the Rebbe and he had special strength, special kaichas, special abilities that the Rebbe gave him. He felt each of us though is a shliach of God. We're all a messenger of God. And when there's a, a situation of divine providence where we're in a particular situation, we have the ability to do things beyond what we can ever imagine. Um, it's not us, it's not, a, it's not about us. It's about realizing that we're simply vessels for a higher purpose. And that's that's why he was able to give his blessings. That's why he was able to give his brachos. He felt as the rabbi of the community, he had a certain, what he called, siyata deshmaya, some help from above in what he said. And you know, often it was literally prophetic. It was literally divine inspiration. But in his humility, he always said it wasn't about him. It was about the situation, about him being there and about being how we all are you know, in a situation because we can do things. We can we can really create a situation that's beyond what we imagine. We have powers beyond our, our greatest imaginations. Um, you know, I, I remember once when I was, the first time that I was going to lecture, I remember passing him in the hallway and I was so nervous and he could tell that I was so nervous and he, he said to me, Hana, remember where you come from and remember what you are. And what he meant was we all come from great stock. We all come from Avram, Yitzchak, Yaakov, Sarah, Rivka, Rachel, Leah. You know, we all have to remember who we are. And this memory of who we are should give us the strength to be who we can be. And, and that's how he looked at people. No one was a write-off, you know. At, at his funeral, there were it was incredible because here you have some of the greatest rabbis from the community who never come together in unity. You know, everyone's in their own little faction, and here they were all there. You know, so sad, so feeling like they lost a dear, dear friend. 
you had children from the schools, from the, 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 the schools who felt such a connection to him, uh, members of the community, members of the larger Toronto community, because people came to him from all over for all different kinds of questions, even for counsel, for, for, for marital issues that they had. Um, they would come to him. They would be in, in our house, in the basement. He had the study and they would come to him and spend hours upon hours. We never knew who was there. And, and, and it had yet, a separate, it had a separate entrance or no, but you couldn't like the entrance was in the front and the basement was right there. So it was mm -hmm. just, you know, people would we'll come right in. in. I, I mean, my mother answered the door, but that was better. <laughs> you know, we never, we never asked about who was there. We just knew that people were there. That's, um, and people would stay for hours. And, you know, people told me personally stories of, you know, which obviously I cannot share, but people told me personal stories of how he literally saved their marriage, literally saved, saved them in the most devastating moments of their lives. But at the funeral, besides for all that, you also had what you could only call social misfits from the community, people that people would not really want to be around. And these people were standing there crying as if they had lost a father because they did lose, lose a father. They lost a father figure who gave them the time of day, who didn't look at them as a misfit, but saw them for what they were, saw them for their core neshama. And that's how he saw everyone. He didn't write off anybody. He always saw the qualities that a person has, the strength that a person has. He saw you for your assets and tried to build that up and tried to build you up for what you were, um, not looking down at any in any way or shape or form. But at the same time, trying to lift you up, you know, one, one person told me she asked him a certain question one year and he allowed it. She, she asked him the same question a year later and he said, no, you can't. And she said, but last year you told me it was OK. He said that was because last year that was where you were last year. Now you've you've grown so much. You can do more. And that was how he built up people. You know, he, he looked up people, was never a one-size rabbi giving one-size answers. It was very individualistic for each person. Um, and that's, that's, that's why people were so ready to accept it. You know, people said you, you could feel his smile beaming through the phone from, from when, he, when you called him. You could feel that mm. twinkle in his eye um, and the sense of humor. He had a tremendous sense of humor. That he would always use to lighten any situation. Right, and I, I understand he's also a very early um, proponent of, of of use of technology. Um, oh, he was a high tech rabbi. <laughs> he loved technology. Um, you know, he was ninety one years old, and he would he he had on his desk, you know, all the the highest technology, big screens. He would give smicha, which is rabbinic ordination. He would do through Skype. Um, he loved he loved, loved technology. People knew that if they wanted to get him a present, they could give him, um, you know, something that was high tech. My son, who also loves high tech, he's, he remembers as a little kid, he would get the old Palm Pilots from my father and how my father showed him how you could beam to each other messages. Um, and he, he, he just was curious. He loved, loved new things, loved understanding new things. Mm -hmm. He also was, I understand, involved in recording the Rebbe's talks going back in the 1950s when, you know, high technology then meant large reel-to-reel -reel recordings and clunky, you know, setups. And he, you know, it's really to, to his credit that the world has, um, I don't know how many hours of recording of the Rebbe that we now can listen to and share and be inspired by and learn from. 
Um, and it's really, exactly. it's to his credit, to his you know, hard work and ingenuity. And you know, I remember I, he told us once that he had a question on Simchas Torah because it was right after Simchas Torah. Already it was past Simchas Torah, but it was still Simchas Torah for the Rebbe. The Rebbe would forbring at the end of it. And he would record, you know, the Fabrangan. And he, at one point in time, but he asked a question, he asked some of the greatest rabbis of the time to make sure that it was okay for him to record it. And that's, right. we have it, thanks to, to his yeah. his foresight and his ability mm-hmm. of doing that. Right. Yeah, he, was, so he was a big chassid of the rabbi. He felt like, you know, people keep saying every, in every way he emulated the rabbi. He was a chassid in terms of how he emulated the rabbi's ways that love for people, that recognition, that that looking at people and that that devotion, you know, and everything that he did to really build up the community and whatever it took, you know, whatever it took to build it up. There there Can was an indi- sh- yeah. Go ahead. No, there was an individual who who told us that he he was young, he was 19 years old when he um when he came to my father, he came there because his cousin, who was 24 years old, had passed away very suddenly, and he had a lot of questions about faith and about religion. And he um, he wanted to know where he could go. So someone told him, write a letter to the, to the Lubavitcher Rebbe. So he wrote a letter to the Rebbe, didn't know who he was or what he was, saying that he has all these questions and writing some of the questions down. And he he wrote the letter, he said, on a Thursday, and he received an answer the following Monday. He said, there's no way that the answer could have gotten to him through the mail at the time, or even today through mail at the time, mm-hmm. um, without the Rebbe actually knowing the question before he, he actually got it. And the Rebbe said to him, um, you have a lot of deep questions. The, the address for you to go to is 44 Edinburgh Drive, which was the old Chabad house before they moved to Thornhill. And he came there and he had, there was some rabbis there. He, he said, he has these questions. He showed them the letter. They were very excited to see a letter from the Rebbe. And they told him, this is beyond our pay grade. You have to ask Rabbi Shachar who will be here any moment. You can ask him. And he sat down with my father and my father says, okay, we have a lot of work to do. And every day, year after year, he sat with my father and my father taught him from the beginning, year after year, day after day. Um, with devotion, you know, teaching him. Um, at one point in time, one time he told us there was someone who who called my father when he was learning with him. And it was a woman who said, Rabbi Shachat, I, I'm ready to end my life. No one cares about me. No one, no one, I have nothing anymore. I'm at the end. And just before I ended, I, I just had to call you because you're the only one that cares. Mm-hmm. And he said to her, hold on, I, I have to say goodbye in person. Wait, wait for me. And he obviously ran over to her house and, and saved her, saved her from a, a suicide. Wow. This was just, you know, one example of, of so many of people who he literally transformed their lives and saved their lives. Mm-hmm. Now, I, would, I mean, if that th- that's obviously a very dramatic example, but I, I'd imagine that his care extended to probably more minor and maybe less important, um, but equally, you know, significant. Of course. What other examples could you give of the way he just related to individuals and made himself um, aware of, of their needs and their, you know, where they were at? So um, a, 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 a woman told me she, she had a lot of children and her, she said to me, um, my, her, her Mendel was 11 years old. She says, 
And my father came over to her and he, he said, she, he used to test boys sometimes just in the hallway, you know, they would be learning, he would speak to them, ask them what they were learning. And my father came over to her and said, you know, your, your, your mental finished reading all the books in the library. There was a library in, in the Chabad Lubavitch of Jewish books so that the children could take out Jewish books. And she says, okay, so he finished the books. So my father says, so what are you going to do about it? She says, what should I do about it? He says, buy him some more books. <laughs> you know this, And she says, the sensitivity, she didn't even know that her son had finished reading all the books. She didn't think twice about it. But my father was t telling her, you, he finished the books. That means you need to do something to get him more books. Give him, be in, involved in, in something, in a positive pursuit that he can have. Um, there were so many people who told us, a, a lady told us her daughter at one point in time called my father. She said she was so embarrassed. Her daughter, six years old, she was calling the Rev's number. She didn't know how she got the number and she's calling him to ask a question. And she called him afterwards and she she called him to say like how, how sorry she was that her little daughter was bothering him. He says, of course not. You know, you, you're never bothering me. I, I love to hear the, the, the calls from children, especially. And he was the candy man in shul. You know, he would. There was a long line of children who would go snake to the front of the shul so he can give their, them the candy because he wanted Torah, Judaism, to be something that was sweet to them, something that they appreciated, something that they loved. Mm -hmm. um, there was a woman who called. She told me she would call. She called one time on Friday, and she's at the beginning of becoming observant. She asked so many questions about Shabbos and what should she do, and very simple, basic questions. And she called a few times that Friday and, and afterwards she's like thinking, I, I just bothered him so much with such simple things. Mm. You know, maybe I shouldn't have. And she gets a call from him without saying anything. She gets a call from him. You know, you might be thinking that you're bothering me, but you should know I love, I love hearing from you. I love hearing your questions. Um, you know, that, that was his life. That was his passion. That was who he was. He, he, he didn't see it as a bother in any, in any shape or form. He looked at people as a as a holy neshama and whatever he can do to help them, to teach them, to uplift them, to bring them to Torah, to bring them to mitzvos. That was his passion. That was his goal. When my son started teaching in, in, in school, he told him, make sure that you always look, look after the children that are weak. Make sure you give them extra love. Those are the children that need the extra support. And throughout his life, this was his mission statement, if you want to say, teach people, uplift people, bring them closer to Torah, to Torah and mitzvahs. Amazing. Now, I just, I guess when, I guess you had obviously a front row seat, which you may not have even thought of was unique at the time, but growing up, you know, what, what was he learning on a typical day? Where, you know, what was that like? Was he, what, what, if you'd find them, what, 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 what was, where, where, where could you find him? What was he normally doing at any given time? So I never saw him without a Safer, which is a, a book of Torah, Torah learning. He was always learning. Um, he was very often on the phone. The phone would be ringing off the hook from people calling at all times of day. And yet he found the time, you know, he found the time. Someone told us who was taking care of my grandmother in her later years that once a week he would come and learn with her chumash. This was when she was like, you know, already at the, at the end of her life, she needed someone to help her. He would come and learn with her chumash. I remember when I was um, a teenager, he would take me to school every day. That was his thing. He wanted to, there was no school buses at the time and we had just moved to Thornhill, which was quite far from my school. He would rush home from, from Shul in the morning. 
And that would be my time alone with him. And I, I just remember as a teenager, you know, there's so many questions that you have as a teenager, so many issues, so much turbulence in your life. And I remember specifically saving those questions, saving those things that I wanted to speak to him about. This was my time with him. And there was no distractions. There was no cell phones then. This was our time together and we could just drive and he would drive and I would just share with him questions I had, issues in my life, situations. Um, it was just so special. You know, I, I was his youngest. So in that way, it was the most beautiful because I got, you know, the best of, of, of everything from him because I was his youngest. I was his baby. And um, the relationship was just always one of love. Um, I feel very fortunate that at the beginning of his illness, I actually wrote him a letter thanking him for everything that he did to me, did for me. Um, and I, I just share this because I think it's so important that we thank people that we love. So often the time comes that we don't get to share what we actually feel. And I'm, I feel fortunate that I did this at the beginning of his illness because, you know, I didn't know what would be and how it would be and what would the situation would be. And, and at the time, my husband even said to me, are you sure you want to write this now? I said, this is so important for me to share. It was one of the hardest, it's probably the hardest letter I've ever written. But I think it's important for us to share with people, um, you know, what they mean to us and, and how much they've given us and to thank them for their life of, of, of goodness and generosity and, and, and how much they've just been there for us because we so often take things for granted and it's important that we express it. We actually express it. And of course, this was his thing always, you know, I mean, the, the beginning of Chiddush that he had with the Rebbe was about gratitude, you know, feeling gratitude. The Rebbe told him, when you take off your shoes, make sure, you know, be grateful in the morning that your shoes are where they are from where you put them the night before, always feel gratitude. He always would tell me that you know, he would he would bench us often. He would give us blessings often. And he always would say the greatest blessing that a person can have is seeing the blessing in their life. And and that that's a message that we can all take. You know, we need to, to look at the blessings in our life, see the blessings in our life, be thankful for the blessings, thank the people who are giving us the blessings in our life. Um, you know, that's wow. really an important message. All right. So you, you mentioned, you know, the, the, I guess the, the, the end of his life and his illness. Um, how did that work? He was such a, you know, involved communal leader. I don't think he ever officially retired, at least not that I know of. Like how did, yeah. how did that continue throughout his illness? And, you know, what did you observe at that, at that time? Um, <clears throat> the last time that I came to visit him, um, there was a woman at the end of a long day in the hospital, there was a woman who called and she says, I, I must speak to Rabbi Shachat. I said, you can't, he's in the hospital. She said, um, I have to speak to him. I, can you please give him over a message? I said, of course. She said, and she was a woman who wasn't in the community. She was living in Brooklyn. She said, tell him that Esty from Brooklyn is calling and please tell him that the last conversation I had, which was right before he went to the hospital when he was very, very sick, she said, please tell him that what he told me then changed the direction of my life. And that that was just, you know, his way of like thinking about others when he 
was in such a situation himself, his, he was always, what can I do for others? How can I help others? Um, on my way to the hospital one time with my mother, I was driving her to the hospital and she looked into her mailbox and in her mailbox, there was an envelope with a question for him. And he often had these, these kind of questions, but someone obviously didn't know that he was right now in the hospital on his death, literally on his deathbed. And, you know, my mother just took the envelope, put it in her purse, um, took it to the hospital and the hospital just takes it out of her purse, gives it to him. And I'm like looking, cause this is like, I couldn't believe what was going on, but they did it in the most natural way. My father looks at the question that was given to him and he tells me, call the person whose number was on the envelope and tell them it's kosher. And, you know, this was from his hospital bed. Um, you know, people who came to visit him when he, you know, the last days would just get blessings from him. I remember saying to one person, there's diamonds in this room. You know, there's just diamonds in this room. And people said, we came to uplift him, but he's giving us that uplifting. He's uplifting us um, in just the way he, he went about it. Um, at the very end, you know, we, we were, we got the call on a Sunday that um, his situation had taken a really a, a turn for the worse. And my, my, it was my, uh, my schedule to come the following week, but I was asked to, I told, was told that it, it, it looks very bad. And this was in the afternoon and until we got the flight, until we got to the airport, which is an hour from our home. Um, and I was FaceTiming to my family there and the, there was already a minion of people around his bed. And I thought for sure that I would miss it. And I asked my, my niece to just put the, the phone by his ear. And I said, Daddy, I'm coming. I love you. Please forgive me and thank you for everything. And um, we landed in Toronto and he was still here. And we actually, we made it. My husband and myself and my son made it to his room. He was still alive. And my husband and son were singing. My family were around. They're ready. The minion of people had left because they didn't know it was taking a while. And he, my grandmother had passed away with all her children, her 10 children surrounding her, many of her grandchildren there. And that we were all singing. I was there in the room. I remember so clearly how we were all singing to her and how she looked at every single person. She got this last weight, like last wave of energy in her last moment. And she looked at every person in the room, one by one by one. And then her neshama left as, as we were all singing. So I knew he, he enjoyed the singing. Um, so I asked my husband and son to sing Nikonim for him. And for about two hours, they were singing for him. And his, his neshama, his soul left him just as they were singing Animamin, the Vias HaMashiach. I believe in the coming of Mashiach. Um, the time before that, the last thing that I did for him was I put on tefillin on him. I helped him to put on tefillin. No, I didn't know how to do it. My husband showed me the day before. Um, my husband had left the day before. My brother and sister-in-law did a, always would, would do it, but this was a moment that he was up and he was... He had the strength, so he asked me. It was right before I was catching my plane out, and 
it would have been a very heart-wrenching goodbye. And I almost feel like he almost sensed it. I didn't know every time I left, I didn't know what would be the next time I would see him. Um, and that was when he asked me to help him to put on his tefillin. And it was almost like he was saying to me, we connect with mitzvos. The way that we can connect is through mitzvos. And the message that he would really want is do a mitzvah for him. Do a mitzvah. If you had any, if he had any impact in your life, if hearing his story has any impact on you, if 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 in any way you feel connected to him or any of his children, do a mitzvah. Do a mitzvah. Le'ilunishmas, Reb David ben Dov Yehuda. Do a mitzvah. That's how we can connect. That's what we can do now. Wow! What a what a what an amazing. Um, sounds- I guess a, a completion of of a life truly well well lived. You know, every moment and every encounter and every. Well, you know, people who say it's the end of an era. Everyone was saying it's the end of an era. He was a legend, and I, I say he wouldn't want that. He wants us to continue the era, us to be the legend. Mm-hmm. He wouldn't want us to say he's the end of an era. You know, he. I don't think he would want this whole interview, except for the fact he would say to me. If it brings people to do something, if it be, brings people to be inspired, write about it. Um, you know, when he was sick years before that, he in, in his seventies he had a growth on his kidney, and we thought it was um, we thought it was cancerous. They said it was ninety five percent malignant, but it ended up being benign. But we did not know that it was miraculous. Mm-hmm. And he asked me to write it out. It's actually on Chabad.org, the whole story, because you mm-hmm. see the way that he reacted to a situation. You know how he reacted to that particular situation. I remember he told my mother at the time that he has this particular book in his study, and she should make sure she returns it to this and this place where it belongs because it wasn't his. His presence of mind at that moment, you know, when he didn't know what was going to be, to just say, you know, make sure you return the book uh, amongst his thousands of books, you know, to remember that one. Um, Amazing. Amazing. Well, that was All right. So I guess as, as, as you've mentioned, I know you discussed this before we began the call and you're saying it again now. And I think it's so important that um, he was a person a very, it sounds to me a great scholar, but a very practical scholar, um, both in application of his learning and just being, you know, understanding what people needed to do and making sure that they do what they need to do. And I guess we can all learn from him and, some some mitzvah, you know, he, we can grow, we can change, we can be that much more kind and compassionate to somebody else, and in that and don't, way. And don't put yourself in a box. Don't think that you are a certain way. We all have such amazing abilities, such amazing potential of what we can do. That was his attitude. Build build up people in whatever way. The way you look at yourself and the way you look at others, you know, do. But, but do it in a practical way. Do it. It wasn't like high in the clouds. It was bring it down, bring it down to earth. Do one thing, do one practical thing to realize who you are, to realize your potential, to realize your connection to God, to realize what you can become, to be connected to your soul. Um, that, that was his message. That was his life. And in whatever way or shape or form, whether it meant crawling on the floor to be with a blowtorch to, to, to kasher a kitchen, you know, in a camp or in a person's house 
or picking up the phone call at three and three in the morning because someone's calling from halfway across the world or helping people in a, in a crisis situation where they lost a loved one or they were in, in family harmony was an issue. Whatever the situation, we can all do something to help another individual, to help another Jew, to make them, to uplift them, to bring them closer to their father in heaven, to God. All right, well, thank you very much. I, I, I'm, I, this clearly is not an easy conversation to have, certainly not so soon when things are you know, obviously so raw and so real and so strong. Yeah. At the same time, I appreciate it. And I know that those who are going to watch this soon are going to appreciate it as well. And um, thank you. I, I really, I think it's important, I mean, as a tribute to your father. And also, I mean, there's so many of us in the Chabad.org family who read your writing and watch your videos. And this, I think, gives us a very, you know, a, a glimpse into a, a your life and what built you and um we're grateful for that and we're grateful to it's important you know it's important when we like look at our families you know mm -hmm. as well as others you know like that carpool time for, for me was mm -hmm. so precious i remember one time he asked me to 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 take over a share a class that he was mm -hmm. giving to women because he was called out at the last minute and he turned to the woman and he said don't worry, my substitute is even better than me. <laughs> and the, the yeah. confidence that that gave me, that how that mm -hmm. made me feel like a million, but we can all make someone feel like a million. It's all in the power of, of, of our words, of our actions, of our smiles, of the twinkle in our eyes, of how we, we, we can all do that to help another person. And that, that was really his legacy. All right, well, indeed. Thank you very much. Thank you. Wow, so that was probably the hardest interview that I've ever done. And um, it was so difficult for me to do this interview because first of all, the loss was so raw. It was so close to the time of, of losing my father as well as how close my father is to me. Um, but also it was so difficult because it was so hard to take so many dimensions of a person's life, such a full life and condense it to a 45 minute interview. My father was a tremendous Torah scholar, a brilliant Torah scholar who had a master of, of Jewish law, whose scholarship was really only equaled to his compassion and love for people, for those around him. And it was so hard to try to combine all those different elements into one interview. But I did say yes when my colleagues asked me to do this interview, because if, I felt if that one person out there could be listening to this and increase in their Torah study or increase in their mitzvah or increase in their compassion for their fellow fellow Jew, this would be a merit to the neshama of, to the soul of my father, Rabbi David ben Dov Yehuda. And he would want that. He would want us to be doing more in, on his behalf and on behalf of our world. If you enjoy watching these interviews and you'd like to get them delivered straight to your inbox, please make sure that you are subscribed. You can subscribe to this podcast on Chabad.org forward slash extraordinary. These podcasts are also available on all podcast streaming platforms. 
We love to hear from you. I read every single message. So if you were impacted by the interview or you'd like to share what you felt about it, please leave us a comment as well. Thank you so much for listening to Ordinary People with Extraordinary Stories.